Hey, Amanda, guess what? What's that? Grant writing really isn't all about writing. Well, now you tell me. (laughs) I thought all I had to do was sit in my corner cubicle, churn out a few pages of narrative, and then just call it a day. Seriously, though, 80% of grant development is about bringing thoughts and ideas together, oftentimes from your colleagues who would never consider themselves part of the grant team. This means grant pros are often facilitators who must be willing to have difficult conversations long before the grant writing has even begun. And that is something I had to learn the hard way. Me too. Sometimes when you're faced with this situation, it helps to get another perspective. D.H. Leonard Consulting's Grant Writer in Your Pocket service is for when you need a grant professional's opinion. No contract needed and the conversation with them can be as long as you need to address your questions. Learn more at dhleonardconsulting.com. Hello there, I'm Kimberly Hayes Day Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you are listening to Season 4 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We're doing more in Season 4 to help nonprofits, local governments, and the consultants who serve them raise more money and get more grants by sharing real-world experiences and interviews with experts in getting it done. You may hear a y'all or two along the way and singing and strange sound effects. It happens. That's right, and there's no extra charge for any of the cheesy things that we might say. (laughs) And Actually, in season four, you'll notice there's more of us to love because episodes are dropping every other week all year long. So thank you for your support and let's get into it. This podcast is brought to you by season four sponsor D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com? Check it out today. Amanda and I love to read fiction. In fact, we know a lot of grant professionals and fundraisers who feel the same way. Truth, we're in a Grant Pro book club, and two of our members, Trish Bachman and Bethany Planton, lead book-based discussion sessions at the Grant Professionals Association annual conferences, and these discussion dens are always packed. And I know, Kimberly, you and I always try to make sure we get a seat at the front. Um, We're both fans of Stephen King's book titled On Writing, which is his memoir and writing guide. And in this book, he recommends reading avidly to make your yourself a better writer. So we thought that because of all this, Fundraising Heyday should feature an award-winning writer of fiction or nonfiction, a university lecturer of English, and a grant reviewer. But who knew we could find someone who does all of that? Our guest today is Jessica Handler. Jessica Handler is the author of The Magnetic Girl, a novel that is the winner of the 2020 Southern Book Prize, Indie Next Selection, Wall Street Journal Spring 19 Pick, Bitter Southerner Summer 19 Pick, and the Seba Okra Pick. She is the author of the nonfiction books Braving the Fire, A Guide to Writing About Grief, and Invisible Sisters, a memoir which was named one of the 25 books all Georgians should read, and Atlanta Magazine's Best Memoir of 2009. 
Jessica writes essays and nonfiction features that have appeared on NPR, in Tin House, Drunken Boat, Full Grown People, Brevity, The Bitter Southerner, Electric Literature, Newsweek, The Washington Post, and More Magazine. Jessica is a lecturer in English at Oglethorpe University here in Atlanta and lectures internationally on the writing craft. So welcome, Jessica. We're so glad you could join us. Thank you so much, Kimberly and Amanda. This is um, really exciting, and I love to talk about writing in all of its applications. Well, and you do so much of it, so you're such a great fit for uh, all the things we like to talk about here on Fundraising Heyday. Very, very true. And when we were emailing back and forth, um, hoping that you would graciously agree to come on the podcast, I really, at that time, I had no idea that you have also been a grant reviewer and would love if you could tell us sort of how that came about and the types of grants you were reviewing um, to just let our listeners know that you have street cred in oh so many areas of... uh, Thank you. That's Yeah, that's true. I uh, did this as part of a committee convened by the Fulton County Arts Council. Fulton County is one of Atlanta's counties uh, in, I think, 2005. So it's been a minute, um, but I loved doing it. And the committee was reviewing literary and media grant applications specifically. And I had not at that time had any exposure to grant writing or reviewing. And I was invited to join the panel. And I am a big believer in what's called literary citizenship, which is actively participating in the literary community in ways that benefit writers and artists. So of course I said yes. And I did it, I think, for a couple of seasons. And um, then I think I rotated out of the committee. But were that to were that invitation to reoccur, I would jump on it. You know, Jessica, I've actually written and received grants from the Fulton County Arts Council. So thanks for your service. Oh, I appreciate that. I, yeah. hope that. I hope that that's one way that our paths crossed without us knowing it. And we didn't even know <laughs> it. I love it. Yep. We were able to get a lot of, I worked for the city of Alpharetta for a long time mm-hmm. as their grant writer and were able to get a lot of art related classes um, going because of that funding. And that's so. why I loved doing it because mm-hmm. these were grants that were in a field that I understand, right? Literary, media, arts. And I was able as a reviewer to have a real sense of um, why this particular grant or that particular grant would serve the community. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So um, what are some good and not so good things that stood out to you in the grants you reviewed? Like you yeah. some lessons learned, like, oh, people shouldn't yeah. do that. <laughs> people shouldn't do that. And um I've brought these, when I've applied for uh, fellowship and grant applications on my own, I've gone back to what I learned sitting on that committee. Um, I don't remember who applied for what, because it's been a minute and it's probably confidential anyway, but I do remember being captivated by story, by the idea of story, right? The grants that used narrative, meaning storytelling, well in exploring who the organization or artist is, what their plans are and how they want to implement those plans, right? So if you tell me as a reviewer a story, you've got my attention. And those are, I'm sure, the applications that throughout the committee got positive attention as well. And when I say tell me a story or create a narrative, I don't mean tell me some big overblown lie. Uh, What I mean is take what you have, what you know, and craft something for your uh, reviewer or for the application with a compelling beginning, middle, 
and a forward-moving ending, right? An ending that leads the reader to say, oh, and here's how the world will change because. Mm -hmm. Give me characters with wants and needs. And yeah, in this case, characters are ideally real people or real organizations. Give me characters with wants and needs, people I can care about, and make their world something like mine in a fundamental way, something I can connect with. Uh, the not so good or the less good might be ones that were really pro forma that just answered the questions, you know, sort of checked off the boxes and I could feel the lack of interest, or maybe it's just lack of skill on the part of the, uh, person or persons writing the grant, because it seems to me that any organization that's providing a grant that's in a position to do this wants to know that the people to whom they would be awarding those grants understand their mission and can be a productive part of that mission, right? It's a, it's a, a community kind of thing. Yeah, very true. Oh, good. Um, yeah, Kimberly and I have both been reviewers before, and I'd say uh, I definitely agree. You, you can definitely tell mm -hmm. who's just like, great, someone dumped this on my desk. I've got to write a grant. I'm just going to quickly answer the questions, and I'm done with it, versus one who's like, okay, we have a, we've got a need, and we've got a plan, and we've got to make people understand why we need their help. There, there's a difference. And there's that um, element of caring, the fact that the person who, who is writing the grant um, or is involved in preparing it, the fact that they care, that they are engaged with what needs to be done, what they want to have done, why they want this award, why they want this grant, that comes through on the page, right? Mm -hmm. It really does. Yeah, grant writing is a real uh, narrative skill. It is, and part of our mission uh, with this podcast and the webinars and other things that we do is to try and help people access that part. Mm -hmm. But there, for me, there's always the flip side, Amanda, I promise I won't preach real hard at all, but it's just the flip <laughs> side. The flip side of this is like, I want to help as many people as I can get very good at this and talking to experts like you to help people understand their kid, there's narrative drive in mm -hmm. your, um, your grants narrative. But the flip side of that is that oftentimes the people who who lead organizations that are doing really important grassroots work, boots on the ground kind of thing, mm -hmm. are the very people that need the money the most, but have the least amount of time to devote to this. So, sure, because they're of, doing the work. They're doing we, the work. Yes. So it's a it's a double edged thing. But today, I will not froth at the mouth about that, and I will say, let's focus on taking what time we do have to make our grants as compelling as possible. Right. Right. So, speaking of compelling. Um, your most recent book, the novel, The Magnetic Girl, actually a, a book club selection. We might uh, talk about that a little bit later. A book club selection for a, a book club that Amanda and I are both in. Mm -hmm. um, we all enjoyed reading it, and you were kind enough to come and talk to our book club via uh, Zoom. And one thing I learned that night was how much you immersed yourself in research in ways that went far beyond, you know, ask the Google Oracle um, <laughs> or... or um, anything of that nature you you really um went in depth at a time when you could travel safely right. and and find out this information so oftentimes grant writers are tasked with using research and data to tell stories um what advice would you have for grant writers who a lot of times are writing about people or places or activities that are very different than their own experiences in terms of gathering that 
kind of research? Right. Um, it's a really good question, and I'm a research nerd. So, putting aside the fact that I am a complete research nerd, anybody who recoils at research, um, I want to caution them or invite them to to understand that research is uh, specifics that help illuminate a story, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say that find the commonality between you, the writer, and the person or place that you think is different from what you know, right? So if you're writing something and you're like, oh, I've got to write a grant about this person or this place or this concept that is not immediate to my personal knowledge, there's got to be some kind of commonality that you can find. And so, for example, in The Magnetic Girl, um, and we'll talk about what that is a little bit, but in The Magnetic Girl, I imagined the vaudeville life of a person who had lived. The, the character's name is Lulu Hurst, and she was a real person. She was born in 1869 and died in 1950. So she died years before I was born. I never knew her. I did not live in her era. She grew up in rural Georgia. I grew up in Atlanta. I grew up in Morningside and Druid Hills. But I focus in the book only on two years when she was in her teens and was performing. Now, I was a teenage girl once. Um, I still am deep inside. <laughs> if you woke me in the middle of the night and said, how old are you? I'd say, 16. Um, so inside, I remember being a 16-year-old girl. So I can get access very easily to what it felt like to be unsure of my body, to want my parents to trust me, to want to do things right, and also to really screw things up because I'm 16. I didn't do it in a bustle in a corset. I didn't use a kerosene lamp to light the hallway on my way to the bedroom. So the, the details of our lives are different. But I could find a place where we were the same. I could imagine what this character's inner life felt like because I took the bet that being 16 in the 1880s was, on a personal level, a lot like being 16 in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, although my guess is that if you played Rolling Stones for 16-year-old Lulu Hurst, her, main, her brain would have exploded. Um, <laughs> but hey, that's, that's my 16. Uh, you know, the same with places, right? We can't travel now, but we will again. So with... Um, Invisible Sisters, which is my memoir, I went back to my old elementary school and I walked the halls and I sat in the weirdly tiny desks. Um, for the Magnetic Girl, I went up to the town in North Georgia where Lulu Hurst had lived. And um, I was told by the Historical Society where the property was, you know, it's at the corner of this and that. So I drove over there and um, I saw that what was an empty field where her house had been and I climbed the fence to get in it and stand on what was the, the footprint of her house. So I could get a sense of what it must've looked like for her when she stepped out her front door. I mean, the fact that I climbed the fence is sort of stupid because my husband walked like three yards down the road and said, you know, there's a gate right here. But, uh, so I guess You're I was so excited. I know. And, and I was like clambering over this fence and I'm not very athletic, but it tells you that, um, I'm just gung ho about using research as a way to find one truth two truths that I can use to build this story. So I would say be resourceful, right? Mm -hmm. um, watch films and videos online for Magnetic Girl. I found, a, I found vintage maps 
of various communities where she'd lived. I watched a little film clip shot in New York at the end of the 19th century. Uh, go for walks in places that are like what you need. If you can't get into your old elementary school or you can't get into a medical lab and talk to a doctor about what's under the microscope, um, find something that's similar and go experience it. Um, and then use your five senses, right? What does it feel like, smell like, sound like? Even if that's appropriate, what does it taste like? Try on that uniform or cook that meal using the old-fashioned tools. Um, so find a detail or two that you can use in your writing that inspires story. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Amanda, it's making me think about we uh, – work with a client here in the Atlanta area, both of us um, on different aspects. I'm doing fundraising and Amanda grant writing and it's a clinic. And so one of the first things we did when we began working for them is to go to the clinic and see how it works in a way that did not violate patient privacy. And, right. Right. And all those, but it was important to see that sort of um, old school institutional looking hallways and to see the cheap pizza that the volunteers ate oh, in yeah. the room yeah. and to just get the idea that this is um, an operation that does a lot of good that is, you know, on a, on a shoestring kind of feeling that, um, I also, we had to present, and, and as Amanda does in the grants she writes for them, you know, how many people in DeKalb County, which is where this is located, you know, don't have health insurance. I mean, you've got to use the numbers, but just mm, sure. being able to relate to this, what what a, a, a in a, such a basic facility, how much good they can do for people who otherwise would not have medical care. So, yeah, definitely. Obviously, I was not going to examine a patient, um, right. but I can certainly do that, that in a way that sort of sensory detail that you just talked about to kind of to get a feel for it and there's a writing exercise that i teach um that helps people because you know generally people are sighted we tend to i mean i know people who are not sighted and i know people who do not hear but you know we tend to those of us who are sighted we tend to um default to what can i see so there's a really interesting exercise that you can do, which is try to describe something or someone without using sight. So really lean on what does it smell like, sound like, taste like, um, and, and write a paragraph about something without sight just to teach yourself not to rely on that. Or use another sense, deny yourself another sense. What is it? What is it? You know, I'm not hearing it. So what, uh, what other senses are coming in? Another thing you might want to do is if you can't go to a place right now and experience it, you can talk with your contact and say, how can I um, reproduce something like this in my home? Or what is a place I can go to that will help me understand? Can I go for a walk in a certain place? Or can I, you know, do a particular little science experiment in my kitchen with baking soda or something, something that would help ask your contact, what can I do to reproduce something like this in my home? So I understand it. Yeah. Nice. Well, and I, I think it's interesting too, as a writer, how you may see things differently than somebody else. Like if you, you know, if when you fully rely on somebody else and I can give you a good example, I, um, there is a grant, it's called the Land and Water Conservation Fund grant. It's a federal grant. You can 
build parks, you can buy parkland, you can fix rundown parks. And so my community, we'd apply for this every year just because there's always something else we can do for park space. And so when the grant came around again and I asked some folks from our park and rec department, I'm like, hey, what's our next project we have in the pipeline that needs funding? Because it's, it's grant time. And they were like, well, there's a section of our greenway that's kind of when it rains, it's the, the ground stays a little too wet, too long. Okay. And I'm sitting here going, this is a problem. How, <laughs> you know, cause I'm like, yeah. okay, so there's a little water on the greenway. Yeah, We're sure out rained, right, okay. Right. Well, it rained and there's some, okay, fine. But they're like, no, it's kind of, you'll just, next time it rains, we'll go out and see. So we, it, we, it barely rained. We waited two days. We go out there and the rest of the trail dry as a bone as it should be. But this one section, it wasn't wet. There clearly when it rains, water is traveling through a bunch of muck and stuff. Yeah. There's like, it was mud infested and not just a little, it's like too big. There was no leaping over it. There's no walking around it. It's degrading the environment along the trail. It's trees that are about to fall down because their root system has been destroyed. Right, right. It smelled to high heaven. Oh, it stunk so bad. I don't know where this water was coming from when it rained. It and so it was one of those things I'm like, oh, okay. Now, yes, I agree this is a problem. Right. And now, let me take some pictures. Now I can even talk to people about, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know you're hitting this spot because you can smell it from a mile away, you know, kind of a thing. Um, yeah. So and there's your sensory integration. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's fascinating yeah. when you read good writing and you realize that the, the author is bringing in more than just sight. They're bringing in all the other senses, not to such an ex extent that it's sensory overload, but if you just sit in your house and look around, you go, wait, I'm hearing things. I'm smelling things. I'm tasting my orange juice right now. I mean, yeah. What, what's happening around me that I can use? Mm-hmm. Excellent. As a university lecturer in English, uh, Jessica, what would you say are the top things that grant writers should avoid in their writing? Or maybe the top things that grant writers should incorporate in their proposal <laughs> writing to help those reviewers and funders connect to their message? So, Because you te teach English, so yeah. help us out here. <laughs> I teach writing within uh -huh. the English department. So gotcha. my students would tell you that I am a grammar hammer. Uh, <laughs> Love I it. I have not heard that before. That's I awesome. am a grammar hammer. So obviously avoid sentence fragments. I mean, we're all grown-ups, we're all educated, we know this, but you'd be surprised how many people write period to the store, period. Um, don't write run-on sentences. Commas are not confetti. Learn how to use them. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yes to grammar. And if you're not good at it, you know, some people aren't, have someone else check it. Use a website like Grammarly uh, to check yourself. Don't rely on spell check because um, that doesn't review context and word use. But most importantly, read your work aloud to yourself when you think you're done. And really listen, not for what you think is on the page, but for what is actually on the page. Right. Are the sentences complete? Is the grammar correct? Have you told a coherent, compelling story? And if not, go back and revise. Revision is not a bad thing, right? Revision literally means look again, revision, right. look again. And of course, wisely use the mission statement, keywords, and other important elements that you find in the application because those are clues, right? And be mindful of people's pronoun choices, please, their titles and how they spell their names. And I say this because I was once introduced as Jessica Antlers. <gasps> oh, 
I am well, not a I name. I kind of like that as a secret identity name, but certainly no. not your professional name. But I felt like people were then expecting to see a moose or something. <laughs> <laughs> sort of majestically crossing the stage. I know, that. I know. With my full, like, whatever it's called on a moose, right? So um, <laughs> It may be yeah. called a rack, but that's a different kind of podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I specifically uh, skipped that one, right? Sorry. But yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> so, you know, we know, you know, as as grant and fundraising professionals, that the, that, um, the application and the mission statement is going to have words that are clues to you about what to emphasize. Um, so be aware of those. And really most importantly, when you think you're done, read the work aloud to yourself and listen to it. And one good thing to do is read it into a a recording or a dictation program so that you can hear it back. Hmm. Smart idea. Okay. You mentioned your, the grammar hammer, which I love that phrase. Feel free. I I have to ask, (laughs) Your stance on the Oxford comma. Oh, I like it. Okay, we can be friends. <laughs> I am pro. I am pro Oxford comma, but I'm still stumbling over the the double space uh, or the, the the double hit between uh, period and uh, initial cap on the new sentence. It's I mean, hard to break that habit, isn't it? it I know, and I don't learning. know why. I don't know why that's changed. It has something to do with digital media, but I, I don't know. But I have a really hard time. Um, not doing that because I've been doing it forever. But yes, you I'm know, pro Oxford comma completely. You know what broke my double space habit? Because that's I learned on a typewriter in mm-hmm. seventh grade. And um, what broke my habit was so many grant applications have such limited character count. Mm, I needed point. every space, and so that's that's honestly what broke that habit for me. Is I I had to. <laughs> that's a good point. That's right. You get the little box, and uh-huh. you get only so many keystrokes in the box. That's right. Yep. I'm just I'm still meditating on grammar hammer before we go on to the next it's question. It's not original to me. I don't know. I read yeah. it somewhere and I I can't attribute it. I don't know where it comes from. I'm but, just seeing um, t-shirts, I'm seeing fleece blankets, I don't know. I'm seeing <laughs> throw pillows. Throw pillows. Oh, I mark I mark down for grammar. I really 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 do because first of all, my mother was a was a an editor, a magazine editor and so she was a person and I loved my mother dearly and I miss her every minute of every day. But my mother is a person who would a published book, she would make notes in it in blue pencil and try to send it back to the publisher. She did this to the New Yorker. And I was like, I love her. Mom, nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's that ship too late. Sailed. The ship has sailed, the barn ship door. Sailed. Right, exactly. Um, and but I do that too. <laughs> I have a former boss who, like when he would review um, cover letters and resumes, it didn't matter what the job was for, he'd give you one mistake because we're all human. But by the second one, he was done. He was like, if you don't have enough care and attention to try to get the job, what are you going to be like when you have it? So that was his his role. And that one mistake is known as the printer's devil. The the printer's devil. The printer's devil, right? So... um, and I, I'd have to look up where that comes from and how old it is, but I feel like it's from colonial America. But that one mistake is the printer's devil, and it's allowed in the manuscript almost as like um, a good luck thing. It's like, okay, here's my one mistake. I did it. Um, but I agree. Poor grammar shows that you just don't care. And I'm not going to judge a person on their own personal grammar skills but I am going to judge them on the ability to say, I'm not good at this. Let me have somebody else spot check it. Fair. Fair. Yeah. 
so we're sort of segueing a little bit to, although, you know, grammar is certainly a serious topic, there are far more serious things yes. a lot of times that come up in life and in uh, grant writing and fundraising when you're trying to connect those those deep-seated issues to people who want to m- help make it better. Right. So in your uh, nonfiction books and essays and as a lecturer, you have addressed uh, very difficult issues surrounding trauma and grief. Mm-hmm. Similar things that would also come up when you're describing, particularly in health and human services, um, education, other places where there's some very harsh conditions or, or, or issues in the medical field. What advice do you have for grant writers who need to explain those difficult situations or people in them, yeah. um, trauma and other types of things, but want to do that without resorting to what I, and this is not original to me, but what I call disaster porn kinds of language where it's like these poor, vulnerable, victimized neighbors, these poor, when maybe it's that they have lived in a place that's been systematically undermined um, for, for decades, if not centuries. What kind of um, advice could you give to sort of get to something without maybe sensationalizing it or having a voyeuristic take on suffering? What a great question, and what a really, really, really important topic. Um, I'll even give you um, a, an extra grammar error for that. Um, <laughs> disaster porn is an evocative phrase. I've not heard it before, but I, I'm just knocked out by it. I would say have respect for the people or the situations that you're writing about and the audience for whom you're writing. So, for example, um, the phrase disaster porn makes me think immediately of those public service ads that I cannot turn off fast enough with the sad animals and the Sarah McLaughlin music. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Right. So these are not respectful to me. They make me frantic and they make me who loves animals. And I have a house full of rescue animals. One of whom just ran by the window. Uh, they, these PSAs make me want to run away from the problem to save my sanity. And that does not do the client any good because not only lost me, I now hate you. Oh, wow. So, right. Um, So the grant writer may need, definitely needs to use technical language in some situations. And that is great because that is respecting the content. It's respecting the reader. So I say in terms of technical language, do that in simple, graceful sentences. So you use the jargon as needed and then you explain it as needed. So a hematoma is a bruise. A category four hurricane can blow at 136 knots, but then describe what that feels like, looks like, go back to those five senses. So, you know, in avoiding disaster porn, you got to trust the reader and trust yourself. Don't go for the cheap shot or the cliche image, the bald child, the starving animal, the uh, underserved family in their collapsed house. Don't go for that or don't go for that a lot, right? Find something unique and personal, personal and memorable. Mm -hmm. Um, A really good example of this, I was thinking about this. um, After September 11th, the New York Times ran for weeks a series of obituaries called Portraits of Grief. Are you familiar with those? Do you remember those? I do remember those. These were really short, insightful obituaries about the individuals, just the regular people who were killed on that day. And I refer y'all to those, not because you're necessarily writing about September 11th, but because the New York Times journalists who wrote these obituaries worked every day with grieving families in a politically charged situation 
And they managed to consistently write evocatively and clearly about an individual, about a situation, about a national, perhaps international trauma without going for the trope. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think it's really important to, I mean, this is one of the things that grant writing does is bring attention, services, dollars to underserved people, situations, communities. And that's, that's so, so important. Um, so if, so disaster porn, I mean, it probably works on some people. Oh yeah. Um, or they but, that's why it exists, right? But disaster porn cheapens the goal and cheapens the um, community for whom the attention is needed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think. I think you're right. One of the things I've heard discussed like, several times in different writing workshops and stuff I've attended for grant writers is, you know, depending on the client, you know, maybe people are working with young kids and trying to explain some of the, you know, why they're not doing so well at school, what the situation is like at home and this and that. Um, oftentimes people will talk about, you know, what percentage of these students are being raised by single mothers. Right. And, you know, how you've got to be very careful because it can be very misinterpreted or interpreted, you know, by like, oh, so that's the problem because it's single moms when it's really more of a writer trying to explain it's hard, you know, because I, 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 I've got help raising my two children with my husband and it's darn hard. I cannot imagine doing it by myself. And so how that just adds to the layers of complications for things, right? But how, how can you how to say it without making it bad the way you say it, you know? Well, and so it's, it's a fine to, line, right? Right. And this goes back to individualized uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, single mothers is a broad brush. And then somebody can yes. just interpret that and say, you know, women aren't competent or single women aren't competent or these women should have X, Y, and Z. And that's right. not, that's not what you want, but, you know, maybe telling the story of this woman, and mm-hmm. this kid, and this school, or this subject, how this kid is good at this subject or not good at that subject. Um, then you get into storytelling, specifics, beginning, middle, forward, moving, ending. You've got research and experiential or sensory stuff that helps you tell the story that, yeah, maybe the issue, you know, being a single parent is part of the issue, but that's on the you know that depends on the grant what is it you're applying for and what's the issue here but but focusing on the specific person problem uh gets you away from disaster porn gets you away from that broad brush i think you could also write um talk about Take it from the other end. Maybe you're seeking funding for a particular after-school program, and yeah. you can then talk about um, kids there or a particular child who's had a successful experience with it, and maybe comes back now to mentor the other kids or something like that. I guess because yeah. not, not everything is going to have a happy ending, but right. maybe that could be a part of that story arc. Is that's what we you know that's that was one child's experience we were able to help but you know what there are a lot more kids who would love to have that experience kind of thing maybe you know not yeah. a positive spin but at least uh here's how it it can work how it can work and what you're talking about here is in in writing 
it's called reader reward, right? You don't want to lie and say, everything's great. You know, if we just get this program off the ground, all these children will have perfect lives because that is a lie. Yeah. But reader reward, reader reward, is a lot That's of R's a in there. <laughs> I know. Reader reward means that the reader is rewarded by something in the story. And again, that goes to trusting your reader, right? So maybe it's not reader reward to say all these kids are going to have perfect lives, but it is reader reward to say this kid's grades went up in this subject, or this kid came back to mentor, or this kid realized that they have a special talent in. And that doesn't mean that their life is going to be perfect, but it means that they have the tools because of this program to move forward, hence your forward moving ending. And that's the reader reward, which then brings the person in to say, oh, I want to help. I want to make this kid's life continue to be better or another kid like them. So this is also telling me that if I was a fundraiser and I wanted to approach you for my animal shelter, I would totally talk about all the dogs that got adopted and had great lives and how many more dogs we could help. Exactly. As opposed to telling me about how they're starving and dying and all that stuff, because I can't even talk about it. Um, yeah, but you want to tell me the story of, you know, that's, that would be your reader reward, right? right. It's like, Oh yeah. Oh look, I can help as opposed to, Oh look, I feel like it's crap. hopeless. It's utterly hopeless. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, and the fine line there is to say, you know, we can help or we have helped. Mm-hmm. X number or this particular one, mm-hmm. but not saying it's going to be perfect because right. nobody believes that. Right. So as we wrap up, um, I I am personally curious because I love following your career and the many wonderful things <laughs> you've done. But um, and I but I also know I've been to a lot of readings when I could when I could go to writers events. We will again one day soon. Um, so the, usually the question comes up near the end, and sometimes the writer has a panic-stricken expression on his, her, or their face. Mm. Um, I'm imagining you don't, but I can't see you, so I don't know. So the question is, um, what are you working on now? Well, speaking of research, I dug out my 1974 high school yearbook. Oh, uh, nice. Boy, yeah. I was, I was doing this online research trying to figure out like what did the popular girls wear in 1974 and I'm digging around online. I'm like, oh, I was in high school in 1974. Where's my yearbook? <laughs> uh, so I dug out my yearbook to remind myself what the fashions and slang were mm-hmm. of the period because oh. I'm starting work on a new novel. I'm very, very early in the process. Um, but like all of my work, fiction and nonfiction, it's about women and how we live in our bodies. Huh. Okay. And that's all I can tell you because okay. it's changed it's changed shape like three times in the past six months. But I can tell you the nineteen seventy four Henry Grady High School orator is on the shelf behind me. Oh, and I bet things are popping. I bet there's all sorts of Maybe there's some bell bottoms involved, maybe, or is that a little too late in the day? There's bell bottoms, there's hip huggers, there's oh, big, yeah. big oh, yeah. belt buckles, there's nice. midriff tops. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Were there there maybe some halter tops and floppy hats? Uh, I don't know about the floppy hats, but I definitely saw halter tops. Okay, fair. And um, I think the word groovy. Yes. I'm really picturing dazed and confused right now. I love that movie so much. <laughs> Same. Oh my god, I love that movie Same. so much. That movie is 
Yeah. It's iconic. It's perfect. Oh, wow. All right, all right, all right. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Actually, that movie showed up in an essay I'm, I'm submitting this week, actually. So. Oh, cool. <laughs> I had to make mention of it because it has to, the essay has to do with with Beck, the, the, the musician Beck and his yeah. song Loser, and the fact uh-huh. that Beck was briefly married to, uh, what's her name, Marissa Rabisi, who was in that movie. Was in that movie. Yeah. <sighs> Six degrees of Kevin Bacon going on here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's research. So anyway, yeah. True. So yeah, they're not to be discursive or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, so Jessica, if listeners would like to learn more about you or your books or your workshops, where can they contact you? Uh, My website is uh, jessicahandler.com and uh, there's information there about my books. Um, Please buy through independent booksellers, although books are available wherever books are sold, but you do want to support your community and uh, you can reach me through that website. There is a contact page. Awesome. Perfect. Well, it has been a lot of fun. It's been so much fun um, talking to you today and learning and picking up Grammar Hammer and Reader Reward and also the majestic image of Jessica Antlers. Oh, my gosh. Well, and I like the whole, you've said it multiple times, a beginning, a middle and a forward moving ending. Loving it. I like that because that's not usually it's just beginning, middle, end, but it's never the end, is it? So uh, I like that a lot. Good. Thanks Thank again. You both. Thank you both so much. This has been fun. Thanks. Oh, we've enjoyed it too. <laughs> Thank you again to our season four sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website dhleonardconsulting.com to download their latest free resources today. Thank you so much for listening. Guess what? We wouldn't do it without you because we couldn't do it without you. Leave a review of Fundraising Heyday on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the word. Please and thank you. We're honored that you chose to spend time with us and we'd love for this podcast to be part of your professional development lineup. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you and hope you tune in in two weeks for our next episode. We're going to talk about employee giving. It's a hot topic. Um, and joining <laughs> us is going to be Ephraim Gopin, who wrote the book on whether or not we should participate in such things. So. And y'all, this is a potentially controversial topic. It has been for some time, so I think you better listen up. Yeah, don't believe us? Check it out on Twitter. Uh-huh. So, see y'all in two weeks. Bye. Bye.